Thank you all for being here. Um, we have a, uh, what I'm sure is going to be an interesting panel uh, on Sanctuary Cities, Senate Bill 4. Uh, we've changed the uh, title up quite a bit because uh, as of this time yesterday, the Fifth Circuit had not even heard oral arguments on the case pending in New Orleans right now. So this is, uh, the, the battle over Sanctuary Cities is uh, not over yet. Um, so Senate Bill 4, obviously the, what's been billed as the toughest state-based immigration enforcement bill. <coughs> Um, even after Arizona's controversial SB 1070. It was enjoined by a federal district judge uh, just late last month, blocking several key provisions, um, one of which was not blocked was the so-called show me your papers uh, provision, but there are certain elements that were blocked, so we're getting to all of that. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping, we'll do a 40-minute uh, Q&A, and then we'll do about 15, 20 minutes of uh, questions, so I'll give you Five minutes before the questions, you all can start lining up with, uh, behind the microphones and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Uh, we ask that you all not uh, sort of give speeches, but actually ask questions. So we are waiting on um, Mayor Raul Reyes. He's the mayor of El Ceniso. He's a lead plaintiff in the case against the state to block it. So hopefully um, he's kind of an important figure on this panel, as are all the other panelists. But hopefully he'll uh, walk in here in a bit. He's not going to be able to make it? Okay. so. Scratch that, he's not gonna be able to make it. Uh, I'm not sure why, but we'll have a lively discussion uh, nonetheless. So uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I'll introduce the panelists as they're seated. Uh, I'm gonna go in order, and then uh, we'll just go from there. A couple things, if you have a cell phone, obviously put on vibrate or mute it or silence, and if you wanna tweet, uh, there's a hashtag, TripFest17. Um, and this, unfortunately, won't be live streamed, but we do have a live blog, uh, and you can follow our Twitter account, the Texas Tribune or TwitFest17, if you guys want to uh, follow along that way. So um, without further delay, let me go ahead and introduce the uh, panelists. Uh, to the far left there, um, we have uh, Mr. Charlie Wilkinson, who served as the executive director of CLEAT, which is an acronym for the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas. He's been in that position since 2014, and he oversees uh, the largest law enforcement union and legal services provider in Texas. Uh, Mr. Wilkinson, when we spoke a few weeks ago on SB4, he said that, the, that Cleet was neutral until uh, the uh, Amendment Number 9, also known as the uh, Schaefer Amendment, which uh, we'll talk about in detail, uh, which added a lot of controversial aspects to the law. Um, again, parts of that uh, amendment were not enjoined, other parts were, so we'll kind of get into that here in a bit as we go. Uh, immediately to his left is uh, Chairman Matt Schaefer. He's a representative from uh, Tyler, Texas. He's represented House District 6 since 2013, sits on the House Corrections and Homeland Security and Public Safety Committees, and he's chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. He's, um, again, the author of SB4's Amendment Number 9, which included several controversial measures. They kind of uh, beefed up what the House Committee had passed out. Uh, very lively debate. I think it was 14 hours on SB4 that night. Uh, a lot of emotions, a lot of tensions running high. Um, but ultimately, he was responsible for the, uh, the main product that was signed uh, into law by Governor Greg Abbott uh, the early part of May. Um, and we have, uh, again, uh, Representative Ana Hernandez, who is a Democrat from Houston. She's re uh, represented House District 143 since 2005, sits on the House Judiciary and Civil Jurisprudence, Licensing and Administrative Procedures, and Redistricting Committees. Um, in 2011, the Sanctuary Cities legislation then was either HB 12 or Senate Bill 9, depending on the regular special sessions. And uh, Ms. Hernandez gave a very powerful speech on the House floor about her experience as a young, undocumented immigrant, what uh, I guess people would now call dreamers. Um, and uh, a lot of people say it was very influential, uh, made the, the YouTube rounds. She was an internet sensation for a while. And uh, she, again, made that same plea 
uh, this time unsuccessfully during the legislative session. So she obviously presents this from a very, very unique perspective, so we're happy to have her. And to my immediate right is Senator Don Buckingham, who has uh, currently serving her first term in the, in the Texas Senate District uh, 24. She sits on the Senate Health and Human Services, Higher Education, and Veterans Affairs and Board of Security Committees. And uh, during the session, uh, the Senate was uh, pretty instrumental in keeping the issue of sanctuary cities to the forefront, obviously, as she represents part of Travis County. Travis County Sheriff Sally Hernandez was, uh, I think, part of the impetus for uh, this crackdown. Um, she's been accused of letting you know, criminal aliens out of her jail without letting ICE get them for possible deportation. Um, so we got a very, very good panel. Fortunately, the mayor's not here, but we'll make do. And if I could have just a quick round of applause for our panelists, and we'll get going. So I'll, I'll start off with the, uh, with the Schaefer Amendment, uh, Amendment Number 9, whatever you all want to call it. So yesterday, as, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, a three-judge panel, heard arguments on whether or not this bill should be allowed to, to go into effect while it plays out through the appeals process. There's a hearing in early November on the merits of the case. And there was a lot of talk, uh, Chairman Schaefer, about, about language in the amendment that uh, they said was, was too broad, uh, that, that plaintiffs argued was too broad, and they said, you know, for example, if there is a disaster situation, Hurricane Harvey they mentioned, you know, a law officer should have the ability to tell police officers, don't enforce immigration, but concentrate on law and order and safety. And obviously the ICE detainer request, which, is, which are requests, um, which everybody has acknowledged are voluntary and not mandatory, from uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement to hold uh, people for possible deportation for at least 48 hours. There's a lot of controversy about whether those are constitutional or not. So those were the two main issues. So I guess, Chairman, I'd have to ask you if, you, if you could go back and do it again, is there anything you would tweak on the amendment or would you keep it the exact same way? I, I think we'd keep it the exact same way. And uh, are you confident that the fifth panel is going to uh, either lift the stay or is going to rule in November in the favor of the state? And if so, I mean, tell me, tell me why, why, why you would argue that the law is constitutional as, as passed. I think Arizona v. U.S. is a great uh, example where uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has already passed judgment on these issues to a large extent. And this bill that we passed is not even as strong or muscular as the Arizona statute that was being considered. So the Arizona statute was in many ways much stronger than what we've done uh, and was held to be constitutional. Well, well part, parts of that parts were, of in, were, right, so to, to, to recap, the part where law enforcement officers can question somebody's status, not solely after an arrest, <laughs> on a legal detention, which, uh, as Senator Charles Perry, the author of the bill, said on the Senate floor, that includes a, a traffic stop, which I think is, is a lot of the, the, the heartache that the opponents of the bill, you know, hold against, uh, you know, Senator Sylvia Garcia has been very eloquent in saying, um, you know, it starts with a busted taillight and ends to, to busted families. So I guess why, why did it have to go that far? Why not just the ICE detainers? Why did you feel like language including a questioning status upon a detention and not just an arrest, why did you feel that that was important? Our patrolmen and our officers need all the tools at their disposal to ensure public safety and to help our national uh, government to uphold the law. There are security reasons, there are safety reasons for an officer to be able to follow his or her investigative instincts uh, when they are making a, a stop, even for speeding. Uh, now, speeding is not a really good example because there's already case law that says they're not going to be able to, to hold someone for any longer than it was 
to um, process the speeding ticket. So the idea that you're going to be holding people for 45 minutes to check their immigration status, that's, that's against the law now. But, you know, you take other crimes, Class B misdemeanors. You've got a burglary suspect, you know, uh, no, no driver's license. Uh, got a trunk full of propane tanks. And there's something in that officer's instincts to say, you know, I, don't, I think this guy's up to no good. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a phone call. Uh, and what if it turns out that this is somebody that ICE had been looking for? And maybe there's a national security threat there. What about that? I yeah, want probable that probable cause for that now. I want that. That's right. And, and you know what? They did, they did before the law passed. But what we're, what we're talking about is the fact that we had sheriffs who were going to say, under no circumstance will you make that phone call. So one of the great injustices of this whole debate has been, and quite frankly, I think the media has contributed to this, is that they gave the narrative that SB4 created a new power for law enforcement. It didn't. Law enforcement already had a tool at their disposal that they could use when they needed to to contact um, ICE and, and ask questions. Right, and, and, the, and you're right. The flip, but the flip side to that is that the people in charge, the police chiefs, the, the sheriffs, the constables, what have you, they could use their own discretion to prioritize what they thought that their department would do, whether it was immigration enforcement or not. But they're, they're not under, under the amendment and the bill as signed. They're not allowed to tell somebody, you are not allowed to check status. They can sort of maybe get some wiggle room and influence and say, hey, if we're having a hurricane, don't check status. You know, perform your law enforcement you know, duties first and foremost, but they're not allowed to do that. Mr. Wilkinson, you, you interrupted, but I want to go to you next. So tell me exactly why it was that you guys were sort of agnostic about SP4 until the Schaefer Amendment came in. Well, it wasn't just that we were chicken politically. It's just that this was a real serious debate about the doctrine of, of local control. Uh, and so that needed to be answered, and uh, we operate in that every day. Officers live in that world. So we wanted to see what the answer was. And so we stayed out uh, because we thought there were many beautiful, articulate voices on both sides, you know, taking the right side, saying their, their piece. And, but no one really thinks about police officers. They're shift workers. And so we've forgotten that. Uh, they have to work a shift to get paid. They take a direct order from the general order, and then they try to follow law. So creating uh, the amendment number nine, which brought us out of the cave, um, it, we have a very strong racial profiling uh, statute that we supported uh, back in, in the early part of the 2000s. And so we believe that Inadvertently, we don't think there was hatred in your heart toward police officers. Just we believe that you can't reconcile a strong racial profiling law against stopping people and asking them if they're a citizen. And what's the basis that, of that going to be? So, so it's going to rain down complaints on police officers. We're going to be in the business of, of defending them. And, uh, and we believe some of it will stick somewhere. And so we're, we're opposed to the idea, and we think that when you, we think that, think about this, you, you, we were already arresting people. There were criminal aliens. Uh, I think the lieutenant governor says we put 600,000 or something like that, is what he said on Fox News in jail. Good. They're gone and they did something wrong, and a jury and a judge somewhere said they're criminals. We don't want criminals running around. 
that's the difference is we changed the protocol. We changed the whole operation. We didn't care that they were aliens. We cared that they were criminals. So the first question we ask is, what are you doing behind the Walmart at 3 a.m. with a pistol in your pocket? That, that's a legitimate question for the officer to ask. And then when we got them to jail, where they were charged, you discovered they're not a citizen. That was a protocol that was working, even in, in the most conservative minds, and we didn't see a need to change it. And after that, we just get worse because the first question you ask someone is going to be the one that separates them from their home, their job, their family. They're either going to fight or they're going to run. Both creates a public safety crisis. First for the officer right there, no seconds that they're facing that. Texas has lost the most law enforcement officer to end the line of duty deaths as any state in America, over two, two, 2,000. And uh, that's our fear. And so that's the reason we didn't want that particular amendment. We thought that, that the discussion was good. We think local control is something that we think should be protected. But the discussion is always good. Deciding what's going to happen in the future, we should, none of us should fear it. It's a time of great change. So that amendment, in my opinion, uh, it didn't even create an offense for the officer to do something with. Senator, if I, if I could ask, ask you now, they, there was in the, the injunction uh, that Judge Orlando Garcia out of Bear County, uh, in, his, uh, in his order, in his opinion, they granted the preliminary injunction. He actually mentioned the process and mentioned how many people were opposed to the bill versus how many people testified for it. Uh, and that includes, uh, uh, Mr. Wilkinson could check me on this, but I'm assuming at least 90, 95 percent of the major law enforcement associations uh, in the state that, that were opposed to it. So I guess I'll, I'll ask you, how, does, how do lawmakers that are for this bill balance, you know, back in the blue and supporting law enforcement, but voting for something that the vast majority of them opposed? Well, and, and first let me just address some of the things that I, I think aren't correct in the interpretation of the law. First of all, it's voluntary for the police officers to ask. It doesn't change any current law regardless of that. It also strengthened... Um, provisions against any kind of racial profiling. It actually put a stake in the ground and said that's illegal. Um, and also, for the first time ever, folks who are here illegally, if they report a crime, there are protections from them. So they're actually safer, and we actually think it helps our law enforcement officers to do a better job. I will tell you that the sheriffs, who are the ones that run the county jail, they were entirely for it. Which, which, um, which, uh, which counties can you? All 200 and... So whatever except for one or two. Sheriff Lauberbach. And um, Andy Lauberbach, sure. The Sheriff right. Association, when he testified for it, it was basically all of the sheriffs in Texas but one at that. And, you know, I live in Travis County, and I'll tell you what, this is a public safety issue. We had a system where we're asking our local law enforcement officers to abide by our federal laws. Our sheriff um, flat out said she wasn't going to do that. And, you know, there was a case where there were a couple folks. One had been uh, suspected, because they haven't been convicted yet, of course, of raping a 14-year-old girl over a year and a half's period of time. She was going to let him out. Another one had been a fugitive of justice, from justice, for several years for allegedly raping a 7-year-old girl a few times on separate occasions. And so these were the people that were going to be let out on our streets by our sheriff. I believe that our peace officers... Um, 
take an oath to uphold our laws, and they shouldn't be able to pick and choose the laws that they uphold, and they need to follow our federal laws. I mean, I'll quibble with one of your statistics. I mean, the, the El Paso County Sheriff, he's, he's actually involved in the lawsuit, and he's adamantly opposed to it. So I think it's, it might be inaccurate to say across the board all 254 sheriffs were. Uh, and not just the sheriffs. You had, you had several police chiefs that were, that were against it. Um, so, so, so again, you know, taking all, all that testimony into consideration, you still felt moving forward was the best way to do it? The, the law enforcement officers in my district were all for it. Um, Representative Hernandez, I'll go back to something that, that Chairman Schaefer said about, you know, finding, finding you know, materials during a stop that could lead to, to horrible events. And I think across the board everybody agrees that that should happen. But, um, you know, in, in the case of Espinita, we're on the University of Texas campus right now. Uh, it has a lot of in-state tuition, uh, affidavit students, has a lot of DACA recipients. So I want, I want to ask you, I mean, what, what is your reaction when you hear Chairman, Chairman Schaefer say, well, you know, it, it, it's, it, this is important to stop major crimes, but at the same time, the bill as passed, if the injunction is, uh, is lifted, a, a campus security officer could talk to a UT student, and under the, under the law are allowed to give that information to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. What's your reaction to that? Right, and uh, something that was just mentioned about sexual assault and victims and protecting those victims and making sure that they're able to avail themselves of the uh, justice system and you know, bring those perpetrators you know, to, 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 to receive their full justice. Um, they're not exempt from the bill. And so any witness that is involved in any law enforcement investigation is also subject to being asked their immigration status. Right. And I think that makes our campuses less safe. You're talking about the provision that says an officer can ask if, if he or she feels it's relevant to the investigation, which is, is broad interpretation. Is that, is that what you're saying? You know? right. Okay. Um, and, and I guess back to the, back to the, to the dream or the DACA argument. I mean, should campus, campus police departments, uh, should they have been included? No, I think just like we excluded uh, the public schools, we should have excluded campus police too. I mean, that's an extension of our grade schools. And we excluded the uh, public schools, but not the school activities. So that, I mean, that we want more involvement. We want, that's how we keep our communities safe. I mean, the proponents of the bill said that the purpose of this bill was to ensure public safety. But, I mean, my sheriff, my police chief, and I think a vast majority, I know there was someone that testified on behalf of the association, but the individual law enforcement leaders were against the bill because that's going to hinder their ability to work with the community, to solve crimes, to ensure that people aren't afraid of reporting those crimes. And so I don't think this bill makes our, uh, our community safer. The, the flip side to that argument, though, is, is as the, the chairman and the senator mentioned, according to DPS records, there's been 230,000 what they call criminal aliens uh, charged from June of 2011 to August 2017. Uh, granted, those aren't all convictions. Those aren't all people that are in the country illegally. But, I mean, shouldn't law enforcement be able to ferret out those people that, you know, for otherwise, you know, a, a, a savvy cop during a traffic stop might go on a day later, a week later, do do a lot of harm? I mean, what's, what's the solution? How do we fix the problem? What's the balance? The issue we have with detainment is, I mean, one, the bill does not include any kind of funding for training for law enforcement. So if a law enforcement officer is going to pull someone over, how do they know what their status is if they're a citizen, a resident here on any of the many visas that are available that has you know, legal status in the U.S.? How are they able to make that determination? And uh, the, the numbers we have seen also in terms of compliance with ICE detainers, it's 9978 78% are uh, local authorities are complying with the ICE detainers. Chairman, I'll send it back to you, though. There's, uh, speaking of the ICE detainers, and, and as Representative Nunn has said, there, the compliance rate was pretty good for Texas. I think it was fewer than 1% were denied. Um, and there's several 
uh, cases pending now, one in Texas about ICE detainers. Yesterday, listening to the, to the Fifth Circuit oral arguments, uh, one of the uh, justices was saying, you know, all, all the literature that he's seen think ICE detainers are voluntary. The federal government says that they're not mandatory, they're voluntary, but all of a sudden the state's taken a role saying, the feds say these are voluntary, but as a state that has the jurisdiction over local governments, we can, we can make you enforce those. So I just want you to speak to the, the gray area that, that exists currently about whether ICE detainers are even uh, are lawful under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Of course they are. Uh, they have... What's, what's the probable cause, is, I guess, is, is the main argument. And I'm not, I'm not an attorney, thank God, but... You administrative... Know. Hey. Well, you know, uh, administrative law has uh, encompassed uh, probable cause for years in non-criminal settings. You look at uh, civil commitments for uh, mental health issues, okay? You have the juvenile issues where we're not going to arrest that juvenile. We're going we're gonna to physically detain them and take them to their parents, Okay. That's not a uh, criminal uh, process at that point. So the idea that you can't uh, take the collective knowledge on probable cause from ICE and use that in cooperation uh, is simply contrary to the law. And the Supreme Court, if you read Arizona v. U.S., says the entire immigration framework and enforcement depends upon cooperation and collective knowledge between the federal agents and uh, the local officers. Now, let me give you a, a story from my district where we had, uh, in 2014, we had a, a man who was determined to be here illegally um, after the fact, but he beat the fool out of a woman, okay? Kicked, shoved, punched, uh, served time for uh, family violence in our county jail. Upon release, he was turned over to uh, immigration authorities goes to a federal judge, and the federal judge releases him on a PR bond back on the streets in my town, okay? Now, at that point, if uh, my sheriff deputy or uh, patrol officer had detained him for another reason, maybe another Class B misdemeanor, maybe he got in a bar fight or something, should that police officer be able to call and say, you know, this guy doesn't have a driver's license, he has no documentation, I want to know what this person's status is, because I can't identify him. Can he call ICE? Well, I think that they should have had that tool at their disposal. And that didn't happen. What did happen is that he went back to what he was doing, and he murdered a 10-year-old girl and dumped her body in a well. Okay? So in that intervening period, our officers, our patrolmen, must have the tools available to them to follow the law and keep our people safe. And Sheriff Sally Hernandez says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to put you at risk because we don't like the law. Well, I'm sorry. Going forward, we have seen that the movement for sanctuary cities is growing and growing and growing. And we would say, stop, no more. Follow law. Cooperate with what has uh, been decided by our national government is the law of the land. And help keep people safe. Mr. Wilkinson, in this example, but even before SB4 or even discussions about HB12 in 2011, wasn't everybody that was arrested fingerprinted and, and sent to the feds regardless of whether or not there was a state law that required it? That's true. And, and if you look at, at the numbers from both sides of the argument, the police were doing a really good job uh, of, of that. And so a lot of folks were sent back. A lot of folks were arrested and, and went to prison. So if you, if you think about it, None of us, I don't believe there's anyone here outside of a, a criminal defense attorney who wants to defend a criminal. Uh, those people need to go. What we're talking about 
is the change in protocol that will be a hindrance. And it really, uh, you're, gonna, you're playing political football with a very serious issue. Somewhere in Texas, there's some rogue uh, department, some rogue person waiting on an opportunity. And so we're going to get the complaint when that happens. It's going to go in front of the proper authorities, and there's going to be a racial profiling case. There's going to be officers who ask it because they feel under pressure. Did you support, did you support Sheriff Sally Hernandez's policy to protect criminal illegal Absolutely aliens? Absolutely not. And, and in fact, I, that's why I thought the argument was, was worth having. And in fact, I don't believe, uh, nor does any police officer believe, that you can have sections of the law that you enforce here and don't enforce there. So it's a good discussion to have, but to balance a political Republican primary checklist on the back of a working cop wasn't the answer either. And if you didn't create an offense, what are they doing anyway? What are they going to do, actually, when they pull someone over? And that's, all these things are popular, and I'm happy to be disagreeable and not agree with any of you. But in the end, that working cop out there is going to face this. And those are the people they are going to. It's a bad climate. It's a really tough, stressful time. It's the opposite of what I'm officer in America now. And, and so when you place this on top without any training, uh, there was no money for that. And I remember clearly that uh, Representative Gonzalez jumped up at the last minute, threw out an amendment that said, well, if the officer forgets, well, if it's an honest mistake, what if this or this? It got 56 votes. And, and, and she got the right to go back to her desk and sit down. That was just a little sliver of employment right for that officer failed miserably because there was a there was a, a little wind down there on, on the floor of the house and we were moving in one direction and that direction this was headed against police officers and, and giving them an extra job with no training and no money. I disagree. I think it gives them an extra tool and I think that the, the teeth in the bill really only apply to the elected or the appointed officials which are sheriffs. Our sheriffs are overwhelmingly for it. Um, it is about having policies that fly in, about some of our sheriffs having policies that fly in the face of our federal laws. We cannot be a land where you just pick and choose what laws you abide by. You need to abide by the law of the land. What, 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 the, what, the, what somebody could argue in the sheriff's defense, though, is that the law of the federal law of the land is, is undetermined about ICE detainers. Well, and, is, and isn't, so wasn't that her, her, that. her rationale? We clarified it, that it is our expectation that our sheriffs um, comply with the federal law. That, that the federal government has said are not mandatory but voluntary? We, you know, the, the, the ICE detainers, the ICE detainers are backed up by warrants. They're about people who've had previous criminal history. Um, that's right, there, has to, there has to be a trigger to, to, to in order for uh, ICE to make that request, correct? Right, ICE doesn't just make the request out of the blue, right? They're vetted, there's um, a reason for it, and what they're saying is this person has committed enough of a crime that they're worth letting us take a look at. And so that's all they're asking for is hold on to them so that we can take a look at this person and, and, um, and be sure we're keeping criminals off the street. There, there's also been some um, you know, discussions that some, uh, you know, as you say, some sheriffs that support tougher enforcement, they do let ICE know. And it's ICE that doesn't go within the 48 hours. And after that, their hands are tied. So is it a problem that the feds aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing under you know, you know, President Bush, President Trump, President Obama, whoever it might be? You know, our, our goal is to set an expectation for our state officials that they follow the laws of our country and that we follow the rule of the law, not the rule of man. They can't pick and choose what they, what they honor and what they don't. 
Representative Menendez, going back to the... That's what the, I was saying. I mean, they are complying with them 99.78% of the time. Right. So we had this discussion. We had an amendment that was offered. I mean, if this is what it, this bill is really about, well, let's just do, make it just about that. That amendment was defeated. Right. Uh, no I, more. It, it should be noted that Dallas, Dallas County Sheriff um, Lupe Valdez, she was somewhat quiet on this issue because she was accused of not honoring detainers, and she's actually being sued for actually honoring those detainers. Um, for for her county, you know, allegedly doing something that was outside the realm of the Fourth Amendment. Um, so it's it's a it's a, a great case in Bear County where it, I mean they were detaining a man for no other criminal charge, just on the ICE detainer, and it was found that it was unconstitutional to keep him just for that. Back back to the to the process. We talked about it a lot uh, about 2011 um, and what happened then. Um, this time around, uh, I want to ask you, where was the business community? Where was their support for or against anything that they say, you know, there's a lot of talk out there like, you know, you do a postmortem after the session and say, you know, the, the business community went all in on the bathroom bill, but on SP4, they were too little too late. So what happened? What happened there? Back in 2011, I mean, same situation. Democrats have been in the minority. So Republicans wanted to pass it. They could pass it back in 2011. And it went through committee, went through the chambers, and it was the business community that killed it back then, the late uh, uh, Bob Perry and um, the HEB, Charles, but the, you know, right. were the ones that did not want this because they understand the economic impact this would have, a, a law like this would have in our state. We didn't have that this time. And I question the same thing. Where is the business community? Because we see the negative impact. The last study that was conducted in the state of Texas, and you know, no surprise that we haven't seen anything else, was in 2007 when uh, then uh, Comptroller Carol Keaton Rylander had a study on the impact, economic impact that immigrants have in the state of Texas. And it was a positive impact. And we haven't seen anything else because I think the I mean, it same holds true. Uh, and so laws like these affect Texas's economy. And I, mean, it's, I don't think we're going in the right direction when we push policies like this. It's not really about law enforcement because we hear from law enforcement saying this is not going to help them. This is not going to help. With, with respect to the process, Chairman Schaefer, you've, you've, been, you've been critical of Speaker Strauss uh, for, for other reasons. Uh, on, on this issue, how, how do you think the Speaker fared in uh, you know, not, not trying to get his, his committee chairs to allow this amendment or that amendment? I mean, you know, the Speaker's been on record saying the House version that passed isn't what I personally would like, but it was up to the will of the House. So the relationship with Speaker Strauss and, and the, the people that wanted your amendment uh, can you explain a little bit about how that, how that went? Do you, I mean, do you, are you thankful for the Speaker's leadership on this issue? Well, if you remember the process uh, when the amendment came up, large portions of my amendment were already included in the Senate bill. So I said, I went to the Democrats and said, I will pull my amendment down, give us some of this other language that's not the Senate bill. Uh, and the Democrats said no to that. Let me say that again. The Democrats were offered a chance for we don't want the my bill amendment. At all. Do what? We don't want the bill at all. I well, understand, but the specific portion that they keep objecting about, they went into conference, and maybe you can tell me what happened because the Democrats debated among themselves for a couple of hours. But it wasn't our job to fix your amendment when we don't like the bill, period. I, I went to you. Uh, When, when given the specific opportunity to, for me to withdraw that amendment, Democrats said, we're not taking that deal. And we want this bill. Democrats? And they knew. <laughs> you I, have I the ability to withdraw that amendment at any point, regardless of what Democrats say. But there's, there, I believed in the amendment. There, there, have, there have been other, other times where there is a deal. And I mean, before the bill was even filed, the, the House Democrats did say, we're going to have to pass something. 
So why not, why not try to make a deal? I mean, there was a lot of people that said either on or off the record that, you know, we'll, we'll, we're fine with detainers. There's a gray area. We don't like it. But if this is what we can settle for and not the quote-unquote papers please provision, then we'll take it. So what happened in those negotiations? What, I mean, was there a breakdown? I can't speak for my colleagues. I should say uh, from the beginning and from oh, 2007, since I've been in legislature, I am against sanctuary cities. Sure. So I'm not going to fix it. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't know what happened, but Democrats said we want you to go forward with your amendment and let's vote on it. And they had a chance for me to take the amendment down because we were gonna, it was going to go to conference uh, and that could be debated later. Uh, so talking about politics, you know, there's politics is, is the nature of what we do. But talk about listening to people. I listen to my sheriff. I've listened to my constituents. Uh, and I've heard what they've said about public safety and what they've said about the rule of law. And, and you know, Cleet doesn't always get it right. I mean, Cleet argued that gun owners should have to wear their papers. Okay? When open carry was being debated, they wanted gun owners to wear their papers on their person. Now, come on. Actually, they we were out of step with that. Actually, we wanted uh, a, uh, a little uh, in, on your holster. Yeah. On, so, on your holster. We wanted some kind of device so the officer... Yeah, stopped. So, you so would be able to see is, your is uh, official license, they, like they a driver's shoes. license. They pick and you know, choose. No driver's license. That's what we wanted. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to wear your driver's license. Yeah, you do. If you don't have your driver's license, they're going to try to send you out of this country. They wanted. They wanted your papers to be visible to the public, and so uh, they pick and choose what constitutional rights they they get involved in here. But look, this is still about public safety, and it was interesting that. My, uh, in Tyler, our police department said after the bill passed, there'll be no change to anything we do because they were just going to continue to do their job and the public was going to have the same interactions that they had before because my police department did not have a policy that said we're, we're not going to cooperate when, when the law is being uh, enforced. And so that's, that's really all it did. Senator, I'll ask you, there's been a lot of talk also about, you know, local control. Why, why not leave it up to the, to the counties or the city municipal governments to, to determine this on their own? Why have a statewide policy? Because as you're saying, as y'all are saying, your police chiefs, your sheriffs want it. Uh, obviously, the El Paso sheriffs don't. Uh, Dallas County sheriffs doesn't. So why not let them, why not let them you know, stick to whatever uh, ever they can under the local government code and enact their own policies? Well, because we have an expectation that they follow our federal laws. And... You know, we, you keep hearing an incorrect percentage of, of the detainers that were honored. You know, when, when the sheriff in Travis County decided to, to really have a policy to only honor a, a handful of the detainers, um, the percentages went up significantly. And in, in speaking with Sheriff Hernandez, you know, she felt like, um, you know, she wasn't obligated to honor those. And so, so we felt like we needed to set the guidelines that in our state where we expect our law enforcement officers to follow our federal laws. The, the, uh, the, the federal government under the Trump administration released uh, ICE statistics recently and they were, they were called by uh, Syracuse University. There's actually been fewer detainers, detainer requests issued since the Trump administration took office compared to the same time frame under the first year of President Obama. So what do you attribute that to? Is it just uh, fewer people coming in or fewer crimes being committed or I mean, do, do you have a response to that, Senator? And if not, I'll go to Chairman. Well, sure. I, you know, I think, um, Oh, that's too political to say. So I, you say know, it, come think, on, come no, on. No, no, no. Right, Saturday morning, we're having fun. You know, the, the Democrats for a long time have had the opportunity 
um, to really address a lot of our immigration issues, and they chose not to do that. So um, the Republicans now in leadership are going to have some opportunities to work in that direction. Um, but I think that I think what you see is a policy. It's not a it's not a partisan issue. It's about obeying the laws that are on the books. Okay. Folks, I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Chairman Schaefer respond. To the last question. But if you guys want to start lining up uh, for questions, I'll again ask you all uh, to just ask a question, not make a speech, and don't be disrespectful. No booing or hissing. That's what we have Twitter for. So go ahead and, and line up. Um, Chairman, your response to the ice standards. Uh, the border right crossings are still high, in my opinion, but they have dropped precipitously for two reasons. One, under the Obama administration, the message was, get here, we will keep you here and take care of you. There was a strong message going south into Central America, particularly, get here and you're going to be just fine. Uh, that message has changed. And secondly, the Obama administration had a catch and release policy in place on the border. Uh, the Trump administration has ended the catch and release policy. And so people now know that if they reach the border, and they are detained by the Border Patrol, that they are going to be processed um, through the immigration system and not released. So the catch and release ending has, has changed uh, the pull uh, effects at the border. But President Obama in his first year or two, and this is where a lot of Democrats were upset about him, I mean, he was dubbed the deporter-in-chief because of so many, whether they were judicial orders and a, you know, an official order of removal or a, a, a return right after somebody crossed. I mean, there were a lot of returns under President Obama. I mean, was he doing something right or wrong, in your opinion, I mean, if those numbers were so high? He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. How so? Uh, they were, there was messaging going into Central America, get here, there'll be no consequences for coming across the border illegally and uh, there'll be benefits waiting for you. So they were talking on both sides of the mouth. So I think the messaging might have went out back uh, maybe in the early 90s. That if you get here, you won't need a Social Security number, and you can bust all the unions and the workers. And I think that, that people were lured here long before uh, the president uh, and his more liberal deal. I think in the end, though, just as political pressure came to Sheriff Hernandez, which I disagreed with, and we spoke openly about that, uh, but the pressure is going to go the other direction, too. You're going to have pressure on elected officials, like the 254 county sheriffs, and they're going to react politically to their Republican primary. They're going to have people running against them, uh, claiming they're you know, liberal or soft on immigration issues. So we've politicized something that's a whole lot more serious than that. So sorry, one, one last follow-up for Representative Nandes, uh, and it has to deal with the, with the push and pull factors. For a long time, as, as Mr. Wilkinson said, people were drawn um, not because of any policy, but because they knew that they could um, float and tape sheetrock or build roofs. Or you know, so we're talking about now in, in post uh, Hurricane Harvey, Houston. Um, do you do you think how much how much should uh, big business that you know either misclassifies a construction worker? or pays uh, under the table for a cash economy, how much are they to blame for the overall immigration problem? Right, we're not dealing with the magnet and we're not dealing with those industries that are profiting from the immigrant labor. And that's, I mean, back to your previous question about the business community, where is the business community in this conversation? That we wanna talk about the immigrant, the family that's coming over to try to, you know, provide a better life for their family, but we're not talking about that employer that is misclassifying, that is, you know, gaining the system by using that immigrant labor. And I think that should be part of the discussion as well. well. It was the Democrat labor unions that killed the Bracero work program, worker program. There was a, a guest worker program in the United States that worked pretty well, and Democrats and labor unions didn't want it, and it ended. But we're going back. Yeah, so we have time to get everybody. Go ahead. Hi, um, 
my name is Cassandra Fernandez, um, and I'm actually a founder of United Fort Worth. Um, and we started the pushback to fight against Senate Bill 4 in Fort Worth. Um, and a lot of the conversation between the city council and, and us was the, the concept of racial, of racial profiling and racial bias. So my question to you is, does the legislature go through racial uh, profiling or racial bias training? Racial profiling, so, yeah, what, what is in the bill to, to safeguard against racial profiling other than the language of the bill? What, what, what are those provisions? There's a, there's a uh, the, the only place that the bill mentions race, uh, color, or country of origin is in a section that says you may not discriminate based on those purposes. And so the bill actually reinforces, the bill actually reinforces the fact nice. that that is, that, that type of discrimination is illegal. Which begs the question, why do you even have to put that into the language? I mean, what is the intent of the bill that you have to include that? Uh, I mean, did, Senator, did you want to you add, I mean, a, a rogue officer here and there, how do you deal with that problem? <laughs> or do they not exist? Or? Well, I think, I think you, you put that in the bill to safeguard people because the idea of the bill is, again, getting back to our elected law enforcement officials actually following our federal laws. Representative Schaefer, you talked a lot about how this was a public safety bill, but um, there's been a lot of concern. And what do you say to the immigrant community who doesn't feel safe voicing their concerns to the police and local law enforcement, specifically because of this bill? There's nothing that prohibits people from speaking to law enforcement. Well, I, that's, I mean, again, I think it's... The question is whether or not somebody that's undocumented and wants reported crime understands the a bill analysis or the language. The, the fear is out there. Um, that could be, you know, like you said, it could be the, the media's, you know, messaging the wrong way or just this fear more going going on from, you know, whatever side of the political aisle. But what, if you had somebody here that asked you, why should I call the cops, what would you tell them? Actions are going to speak louder than the words. And I can tell you, my community, the law enforcement has been very clear that they're not going to change how they interact with the public. They're not going to change how they interact with the immigration, uh, immigrant community. That action on the street is what's going to send the proper message. Because what the media has said has flatly been inaccurate about the bill. And so I think that actions out in the community are we're going to reinforce the idea that you can speak to the police when you want to report a crime. Sure. Thank you. Okay, so we keep referring, referring to the law and public safety. Um, however, we have research demonstrating that cities with higher concentrations of immigrant communities on, on average have less crime than their counterparts. Additionally, the public safety theme has been used uh, throughout history without ceasing to paint people of color as hypersexualized predators like in Birth of the Nation. Do you realize that you're part of a continu uh, continuation of that racist trope when on average we know that such a narrative isn't true for immigrant communities? Statistics, anybody want to speak to statistics? I mean, there are statistics that show that immigrants, for whatever reason, because they don't want to interact with law enforcement, they commit fewer crimes. So. I mean, does anybody want to speak to those stats? I mean, we, we, there are also statistics out there that show that we have hundreds of thousands of violent crimes committed by illegal immigrants and often multiple crimes per immigrant because of the way they've been able to come and go back across the border. Um, you know, again, this law is about getting our criminals off the streets, obeying our federal laws, and I believe in making our communities more safe. I think, I, I want to say that the immigrant community that I know, particularly those from Mexico and Central America, bring with them very strong family values. They don't want to go uh, steal and burglarize and do things like that. So uh, Senate Bill 4 deals with people who are suspected of committing crimes. And so I think there's a lot of good qualities uh, to, our, to the immigrants out there that 
would probably lead to the fact that they don't have those kind of crime statistics, if, the, if your statistics are accurate. Representative Nunes, I guess I'll, I'll ask a follow-up. I mean, if, if, if one out of 100 people that are in the country without authorization commit a horrible crime, I mean, isn't it worth asking all the 100 just to stop that one person? I mean, we've had this conversation that you have bad apples in every society, and you can't demonize, you know, uh, an immigrant community because of their status and say, you know, they all, all 100 of them should be asked for their status. Next question. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Tristez Ordex Ramirez, and I am a retired Marine Corps Staff Sergeant. Thank My you, husband sir. is an immigrant. My parents were immigrants. And when I, first, when I first heard about this bill, I was so disgusted because I fought for constitutional rights. And my husband, it's an immigrant who came to this country from the Dominican Republic. He's continuing to fight for your constitutional rights and everybody's in this room. And this law, Senate Bill 4, it victimizes me, my husband, my son, who is a Latino. Can we, can we get to the question? But, so here's my question. You say that this is what your constituents want. But have you actually done something to gauge statistically what, your, what the communities really want? Is there actual, factual information, numbers out there that you could give us that put numbers out there for us to be like, okay, so the majority of Texans want this. There are a lot of surveys that show a lot of, there's a lot of support out there. And, and I guess, you know, a husband, a person serving in the military to, to protect a country. Can a country have a border? Can, can anyone come here? Or are there some people who can't? I mean, that's really the core question. If we're going to have unrestrained, uncontrolled immigration, or does a nation have borders? That's really the question you have to ask, because if you say we have borders, and that means some people cannot get in. Oh, I never said anything about borders. My question was, in the state of Texas, your constituents, because you, sir, you stated that your constituents wanted that. So I wanted to know from you yes. saying that your constituents wanted that. What, what are the numbers? Can you give us those off, numbers? I, I, I've seen surveys from my district. It's off the charts off the charts in favor of this. To, okay, to, I'll make sure and I call your office to get those. Thank you, sir. To, uh, to, speak, to, to speak to her point, there, there have been, the, the, the Lyceum, there have been, the, even, I mean, even, uh, it's a small majority, but a majority of Democrats at least agree with the ICE detainer provision. So again, because this is an, an omnibus bill, there's so many layers to it and so many, so many different facets. That's, that's why we're having this problem. You know, you can't, I think, dissect Senate Bill 4 without going into the, I think, dozen provisions in there that are uh, controversial. Ma'am, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm a student from Austin High School, and I was just wondering how recent immigration legislation, especially the DACA decision, will affect students specifically. Going a little bit out as before, but maybe Representative Nunes can speak well, to that. Well, it, like, it keeps changing, and yeah, right now we're just in a holding pattern. It seems we're waiting to see what Congress will do, and, and it is unfortunate because there have been opportunities, as Representative Schaefer mentioned in the past, under both Republican and Democratic leadership. But still, that doesn't mean that our dreamers should be used, you know, as a political, you know, 
football. And um, I think the last comprehensive immigration reform was the one in which my family availed itself in 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, and we haven't seen anything like that. So it is a complex issue when we deal about visas and who's allowed into the country, who stays, and, and how we enforce those laws. And so uh, I continue to support the DACA students 100% and, you know, and our in-state tuition, which is what we can do at the state level. I mean, there's nothing we can do as legislators as much as we try to uh, affect uh, federal immigration law, but at the state level we can, and we do that through in-state tuition. Yeah. If I could ask, uh, and that did go ahead. happen under the Republicans, right? So I mean, you, you got your citizenship through a Republican, a uh, Reagan Republican. To be to be to be fair, as the senator brings up a good point. I mean, the um, I think what a lot of uh, immigration attorneys say created such a problem currently in the United States is the three and ten year bars that were passed under the Clinton administration. Whereas George W. Bush was the last Republican president to really try for immigration reform. Uh, obviously, we saw what President Obama was and was not able to do. Obviously, you know, with DACA, DAPA was never put in effect. DACA is in a holding pattern. Um, but but you bring up a good point, Senator. So speaking of a Republican president, President Trump sort of you know threw everybody a curveball recently and said, I'm going to meet with. Uh, Representative Pelosi and, and, Senator, and the senators, and we're going to make a deal because he is sympathetic to these, uh, these young undocumented immigrants that have DACA. How do you feel about what the president said about these, uh, the DACA recipients? Well, I think you look at the, you look at the Republican legacy on, on these issues. I mean, the Republicans freed the slaves. You know? That's, <laughs> we did. <laughs> well, Lincoln was a Republican. Well. So I'm just saying. You, you, knew, you knew you were going to get that reaction. So. We also pushed for the social reforms okay. in the 60s and Martin Luther King time. If, if, I could bra- if, push I, that through. if I could bracket the time frame to the last three weeks. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is the Republicans... <laughs> the, if you really look at the legacy on these issues, the Republicans are the ones who have made the positive. So moving forward with DACA and what President Trump said, though, specifically, not, not about what happened a long time ago, where, where do you stand with the president in his public statements about trying to work out a deal because he's sympathetic to these dreamers? Well, I, I think we're waiting on Congress to act. We don't have any sway over the federal law, and so we'll see what they do. But I think it's an opportunity to do something that's been missed in the last administration. Thank you for your question. Appreciate it. Hi, my question is about uh, why do you think that Senate Bill 4 is the best way of solving a federal immigration problem considering the differentiation of federal law, state law, and municipal law? Why is it that state leaders choose this route as opposed to encouraging federal representatives to strengthen and fund existing federal law to allow the federal immigration people to be dealing with these issues. Why kick it down to a state level? You know, really all this law says is that we expect our law enforcement officers that are elected or appointed to uphold the federal laws. But of course, municipal law enforcement only enforces municipal and state laws. It has nothing to do with federal law, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Why are you allowing this mixture to happen as opposed to because requiring federal law enforcement. What we were seeing a trend beginning to happen was that, you know, we're talking about people who are most likely criminals with a significant history who are already detained and in jail that the Fed said You understand that because most likely isn't a conviction, right? We have well, a presumption I, I of Allegedly, right? yeah. Oh. We are talking about people with a prior history that makes them very likely to be a danger to the community they're in, and the feds have asked for them to be returned so that they can. What are those uh, guidelines that you're referring to? What, what specific 
bell do you reach to have that distinction? What we say is that we should be, we should go according to the rule of law and not the rule of Maine. You can't pick and choose which laws you uphold. Our peace officers pledge are to uphold the laws of our state and country, and we think they should, and that's all we're saying. Thank you for your question, sir. Appreciate it. Ma'am? Good morning, and uh, I'd like to thank each of you for, for being with us this morning. I'm Ruth Wassum. I'm a professor, clinical professor of practice here at the LBJ School, and I have a question, a two-part question that I'd like each of you to answer. The first part... I hope I can remember the second. You know, it's easy. You don't have to get into a long thing. The first part is, do you think it is okay to hold someone in jail if there is not an arrest warrant for that individual? And secondly, if you do think it's okay to jail someone without an arrest warrant, how long should that person be put in jail without an arrest warrant? Sorry, Thank you, Mike. Mr. Wilkinson. Okay, well, that's governed now, correct? You, you, can, you could give me a whole lecture on that. But uh, you, you have to have probable cause to even talk to someone. You have to have a, a criminal complaint, even if the officer becomes the complainant, uh, to take someone to jail. And then there is a limit under the law as to how long they can be there on a suspicion of uh, whatever. So I think the, the laws address that, and I think you ought to follow it. And it's very limited, and it ought to remain limited. That's, uh, I hope that's one and two. <laughs> yes, it is. Thank you very much. The uh, federal legal framework under the Constitution uh, for immigration holds has been held to be constitutional. It's part of the sovereign government's ability to control its borders. And so we have seen that people uh, who uh, are being held are doing so uh, under a federal legal framework. So just to be clear, you're, you're basically detainers. Having an immigration detainer is not the same thing as an arrest warrant. So some, so, most, some are accompanied with a warrant, some are requests, some, right. right. So just yeah, it's, it's a, again so, a gray area. And, okay, so that's, that's what I wanted to make clear. So someone that has a detainer but not an arrest warrant, how long do you think a local jail should be holding that person at local taxpayers' expense um, uh, before uh, further action is taken on that individual? The taxpayer is paying no matter what, whether their money is flowing through the federal government or it's flowing through the local government. Taxpayers are paying for it either way. And the entire federal immigration framework depends upon partnership and collaboration with local law enforcement. Every Supreme Court ruling on the matter has acknowledged that. So there's, you would put no limit? The, the limits are under the federal law. Okay. I disagree, and I, I believe it violates their Fourth Amendment rights to be held without probable cause. Senator? And I, I think we ought to uphold the laws that we have. I think we have rules and regulations that affect all of that, so it's already in place. Well, the laws are uh, competing uh, and conflicting, as we've just heard. Uh, they're federal detainers, uh, so there is ambiguity uh, currently in the law, and that's what places um, state and local governments right. in this awkward situation. Well, my understanding is the detainers are for 48 hours. Right, and that's, and I think, but even, but even, I mean, there's been some attorneys that say if you hold somebody for 48 seconds past the, the time that they're, you know, they shouldn't be held. So I think that's why there's multiple lawsuits right. at this level to try to determine exactly what can and can be done. Last question, ma'am. Thank you very much for your questions, ma'am. 
Hi, my name is Amy Shu. Um, I am the child of immigrants who arrived undocumented from Central Europe during the colonial period. And if I get pulled over, nobody's going to ask me for my papers. My papers are at home, and it never occurs to me that I need to leave the house in order to, that I need to take them with me when I leave the house in order to prove to somebody, regardless of what may happen throughout the course of the day, that I have the right to live and work here in the United States. That's a question, ma'am. Thank you. How can you say that racial profiling is not involved if someone who looks and speaks like me is never going to be carted. All of us are carted when we're pulled over. No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm carted for my driver's license. But yeah, they, don't, exactly. they don't ask me for something that proves my citizenship. Do you have they a driver's license? I have my driver's license. I don't have my birth certificate you, on me. Do you have a Texas driver's license? I have a Texas driver's license. Then there's license. no need to... Uh, there are people who have Texas driver's license who's, who are not citizens of the United States. You could, you could have deferred action to get a driver's I license. I understand that, but you have, according to state law, you have to have You're a, not answering the question. I am answering your question. No, so you're ma not. Ma'am, 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 be nice. Be nice. Give him time. Chairman, he, the, public, the Department of Public Safety did enact the policy in 2009, and it was codified in 2011 that it requires proof of legal status or deferred action to get a Texas driver's license. Okay. Or identification. Answer your question. An officer... When you get pulled over speeding like all of us do, we show our papers, we show our mm -hmm. driver's license, and under mm -hmm. Texas law, if it's a Texas driver's license, that means that individual took, when they went to, all, we all have to initially take documents to get our driver's license. We take our documents, show who we are, and under Texas law, you have to have a legal status, whether it's as a guest, uh, a visa, or something, in order to get a Texas driver's license. I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask a follow-up. If you, if you leave your driver's license uh, at home and you're walking across the street to 7-Eleven yes. and you jaywalk, yes. are you okay with you being asked for status? Because it might happen, yeah. it might not, but across the board it would probably happen for somebody that... I've got my driver's right. license number memorized. But nobody's going to ask you your status because of the way you look, frankly. Look, I understand uh, the sentiment of, of your argument, but at the end of the day, we have to have a point where we say federal law allows us to say who can be in the country legally and who cannot. But how can you say that, that? We got we got to we got to wrap it up. I'm sorry, we're okay. about there. Thank you so much, guys. Very much. Uh, obviously, uh, very passionate discussion. But we thank you all for your courtesy. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I appreciate thank you. Thank you.